Welcome to Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. In previous episodes, I have talked about Jesus as the Messiah, the Liberator, leading his people to freedom from oppression, a new or second Moses. In this episode, we will discover that, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus does not actually start his own movement for liberation. Messiah though he may be, Jesus joins a liberation movement already in progress, one led by the enigmatic figure of John the Baptizer. My name is Bert Newton, and this is Episode 6 of Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's Jesus' first proclamation, a call to enact a new social order, on earth as it is in heaven, he will later say. But in Matthew, Jesus is not the first one to proclaim this message. It is John the baptizer who first proclaims it. Jesus only takes up this message after being baptized by John. Let's read the text. Matthew 3, 1-17. In those days John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all of Judea were going out to him, and all the region along the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up out of the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. So our text begins with John proclaiming the dawning of the new society a new society that he calls the kingdom of heaven. What he means by this 
is the society of heaven on earth, or the social order of heaven enacted on earth, so that it replaces the corrupt and oppressive social order that currently prevails on earth. The kingdom of heaven is to replace the kingdoms of men. In the new kingdom, there will be no human king. The only king will be the king of heaven, the God of justice and mercy, who pronounces harsh judgment on the powerful, as we see John doing in this passage, and who lifts up the poor. Now, of course, Jesus will be hailed as king, but as we will see, he will be the anti-king king, the king to end all human kings. Now, the Gospel of Mark, which is a major source for Matthew, has Jesus baptized by John, but does not have Jesus taking up John's message. Matthew has added this detail, I think to reinforce that despite the depiction of Jesus as the Messiah, he is actually joining John's movement when he is baptized by him. Jesus takes up John's message, repent, for the new society is dawning. It's a bit confusing to us because Matthew portrays Jesus not only as the Messiah, but also as the Son of God. Now, we have already seen in previous episodes of this series that the title Son of God not only confers divine status onto Jesus, but was also a title for kings and emperors in this part of the ancient world. Kings and emperors were imbued with divine status and were often said to be the son of a particular god. So if Jesus is both divine and a king, it seems contradictory that he would be baptized by John into John's movement. But that is the whole point. You see, Jesus will be a peasant king, an anti-king king, the king to end all human kings. He is God in the flesh. He is justice, love, and mercy in the flesh, putting an end to the rule of some human flesh over other human flesh. And for this reason, he must be baptized to fulfill all justice. Many translations use the word righteousness, but the Greek word connotes more of a social righteousness, so I translate it as justice. Even Jesus must submit to the rite of passage required of all people who join the struggle for an egalitarian society. Only when the king submits to baptism like everyone else, only when he joins their movement, can the people know that this king is not like other kings, that this king has not come to exercise lordship and authority over them, has not come to be served, but to serve and to lay his life down for them. He is the anti-king, king. Now John appears in the wilderness doing baptisms at the Jordan River. This whole scene looks very religious to the modern mind. Many of us have attended or at least seen video or depictions of religious baptisms at rivers or other natural bodies of water. But to a first-century Jewish audience, this scene is full of political revolutionary symbolism. The wilderness, or desert, was where radical political movements of the time would go to gather and get organized. These groups were radical in the fundamental sense of the word, in that they were going back to the root or origin of their nation. They wanted to renew or revive Israel by starting over. 
So they would go back to the place where the nation began, which is the desert. You see, the wilderness, or desert, was the place where Israel, according to their official national history, was born as a nation. And the Jordan River was the river that Joshua led the people of Israel across into the land to establish their nation. So by placing John in the desert, at the Jordan River, baptizing people in that river, Matthew signals that John's movement is one of radical national renewal and liberation. But what about baptism? Isn't that a religious rite? Well, as I've argued before, the concept of religion as a separate sphere of life and thought with its own rights and institutions, is a modern concept. As with many things that we encounter in the gospel, baptism in the ancient world was a political rite, a political ritual. Baptism was used in a variety of ways in ancient Israel, but in all cases, it had to do with washing away sin or ritual impurity. Of course, that sounds to us today like a religious function. But as I argued in episode two of this series, Sin and the forgiveness of sin were sociopolitical. The same was true for any impurity and for the cleansing from impurity. One way that we know this is that the political leaders and liberators were said to deliver people from sin and other impurity. For example, the Roman poet Horace declares that Caesar wiped away sin. Sin and its forgiveness or abolition is a frequent topic of political discourse in literature of that period. The Hebrew prophets frequently lament the sins of the nation and even use a sort of baptism metaphor when they speak of Israel's impurity being washed away. The impurity of Israel, according to the prophets, is its own sin of economic injustice, the oppression and dispossession of the poor, and the consequent punishment by God for that sin of injustice through domination by a foreign power. You see, when foreign empires like Assyria or Babylon attacked and brutally subjugated Israel, the prophets interpreted these tragedies as punishment for Israel's own oppression of the poor within its borders. The prophets declared that economic injustice within Israel defiled the nation, making it impure and that God's punishment of Israel through domination by a foreign power further defiled and shamed the nation. Sin and punishment brought impurity and shame. The removal of this shame and impurity, according to the prophets, could come only through establishing justice for the poor and being delivered from foreign oppression. When imagining a time of justice for the poor and freedom from foreign oppression, the prophets spoke of Israel's sins being washed away and of Israel being reborn or recreated. So when John the baptizer stands in the desert on the banks of the Jordan, calling the people to repentance through a ritual cleansing, he is calling the people to be renewed. He is calling the nation to be recreated. In fact, the rabbis spoke of baptism as rebirth. When John calls the people to be cleansed in the river, he calls them to commit to a movement that seeks to end social and economic injustice and foreign oppression. Through this ritual of cleansing, 
John calls the people to join a movement to renew or recreate Israel by washing away its sin and shame so that it can be a nation of justice and mercy, free from foreign oppression. Since one way that ancient Jews used baptism was to bring someone into the Israelite nation to wash away impurity and confer on them Jewish citizenship, as it were, it may be that the symbolism that Matthew intends in this passage is that of John standing in the place where Israel was born and calling the people to renew their citizenship in Israel through baptism thereby recreating the nation, starting all over so as to establish a new free society of justice and mercy as called for in their Torah. Whether we understand John's baptism as a citizenship ritual or a more general cleansing ritual to call the people to renewal and liberation, really there is little effective difference between the two, in either case it would still be a cleansing ritual to wash away sin and impurity, and would therefore have challenged the authority of the temple ruling establishment. You see, the temple authorities controlled matters of sin, purity, and forgiveness. Now, we tend to think of the temple as a religious institution, but it was actually a government institution. Virtually all civilized societies in antiquity had temples through which the governing class exercised control over the people. The priests were government officials and part of the ruling class. In virtually all of these temple states, animal sacrifice was a central mechanism through which the priests exercised their power. It worked differently in different places, but usually participation in the sacrificial rituals was necessary to maintain good social standing and corresponding political rights and privileges. In Israel, sacrifice was used for, among other things, atoning for sin and restoring purity. While ritual baptisms may have functioned to provide a more frequent way for people to cleanse themselves of sin and ritual impurity, sacrifice was ultimately necessary to maintain proper purity and to be in good standing in society. Given the desperate circumstances of the common peasantry, however, it is not clear that the majority of the people had regular access to cleansing pools for baptism, much less the resources to make regular trips to Jerusalem and offer the proper sacrifices there at the temple. It is likely that the common peasantry lived in a perpetual state of impurity. They were, from the perspective of ritual purity, the unclean masses. But John offers these poor, unclean masses a way to get the ritual purity that they have been denied with the corresponding social standing and political rights in the new society. That his baptism is meant for the lower classes can be seen by the way that he treats the upper classes who come to the baptism. He treats the Pharisees and Sadducees as hostile. And they probably were coming as hostile opponents of his movement. They came not merely to the baptism, as many translations have it, but against the baptism. The Greek allows for this translation, which makes more sense in context. John's opposition to the Pharisees and Sadducees is not a religious opposition, as we modern readers tend to assume. 
His opposition to them is class-based. Pharisees and Sadducees come from the upper classes, whereas John is providing a way for the common people, the common poor, to circumvent the system that the upper classes have set up to maintain their power over the people. So when John stands on the banks of the Jordan, inviting people to repent and be baptized, in addition to calling for national renewal, a rebirth of the society, he is also providing a way for the common poor to attain ritual purity that will put them in good standing in the new society. In doing so, he eliminates the need for the temple and its priesthood. He eliminates a central function of the ruling class. The new society, the kingdom of heaven on earth, will need no priests, and all people will have access to purity and good social standing. John's radical movement for a new society provides for the inclusion and good standing of the common peasantry by eliminating a primary role of the ruling priestly aristocracy. The desperate social and economic situation of the peasantry in ancient Palestine of the first century would have been enough to warrant this sort of restructuring of society. But there was also the matter of the corruption of the ruling priests. Ancient sources report them to have been lovers of money, even using violence to get what they wanted. The Mishnah, a later ancient collection of rabbinic writings, remembers the situation in the temple of the first century as one in which onerous financial burdens were placed on the poor for their sacrifices. Additionally, both the rabbis and Josephus, the great Jewish historian of the late first century, report that the chief priests would physically attack lower priests to steal their tithes. The chief priests were, reportedly, a violent and greedy aristocracy. Another important detail, often ignored by commentators on the Gospels, is that the chief priest at the time of Jesus was appointed by Rome. So the temple was, in fact, a Roman puppet government. Cutting the priestly aristocracy out of the new society not only eliminated priestly corruption and the onerous cost of sacrifice borne by the common people, it also eliminated the first layer of Roman rule over them. And that is why Matthew, following Mark's lead, introduces John the baptizer with the quote from Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The quote from Isaiah in its original context proclaims the coming liberation of Israel from oppression under the Babylonian Empire. Centuries later, in Matthew's Gospel, John proclaims the liberation of Israel from oppression under the Roman Empire. So, although the quote from Isaiah does not literally refer to him, it is literarily appropriate for him. John leads a movement for a new society of justice and mercy, where the common poor and the outcast find redemption and honor, and where the new Babylon, Rome, no longer rules over them. It is this movement that provides Jesus with his first supportive community. His baptism into the movement becomes his inauguration into his mission as the Messiah 
the Son of God. At the moment that he comes up out of the water, the Spirit of God descends on him as a dove, and a voice from heaven proclaims that this Galilean peasant, one of many flocking to the river to hear John's message of the new society, this member of the unclean masses, is the beloved Son of God, the King of Israel, the King to end all human kings. My name is Bert Newton, and this has been Episode 6 of Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Music